Here we go. You're listening to Law and Gospel Open Mic Friday. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and this is October the 29th in the year of our Lord, 2021. Uh, We're live, and we're taking emails from individuals that have written to us with certain questions. So, without further ado, here's one from an individual named Philip. I have a friend that identifies with a group called the Hebrews. His friend is very strict on dietary pureness for religious reasons. Is there a Bible passage that covers that we can eat anything? Philip wants to be able to share this passage with his friend. Well, first of all, who are the Hebrews? Uh, The Hebrews, actually, that term refers to those who are considered synonymous with the Semitic-speaking Israelites, especially in the pre-monarchic period when they were still nomadic. So they were really following the rules, the ceremonial rules for diet. And there was clean food and unclean food. We know from that time, of course, that God was really telling them not to eat pigs, pork. And so that was something that the people stayed away from. It was interesting that in the New Testament, the ceremonial laws are abrogated, which means they're no longer in effect. And the best passage to look at in Acts is Peter is on a roof, and he's up there to have a meal, and he's just about going to be meeting with a Roman centurion and his family. So God is preparing him. What God does is in a vision, Peter sees food come down on a blanket and it's unclean food. And God says, eat this unclean food. And Peter, no, I've never eaten anything unclean. Three times God tells him to eat the food until God says, what I have declared to be clean, do not consider to be unclean. And finally, Peter gets it. So when he meets with a Gentile family that wants to hear about Jesus, he recognizes that God has indicated that, guess what? It's not important what you eat because now you can eat anything. And therefore, all the unclean food is able to be eaten. There are lists in the Old Testament of unclean food, and there's quite a number of them. But these now are okay to be eaten. I was kind of happy because in fish, one of the unclean foods is tuna. And I like tuna sandwiches. 
So I'm glad I live in the new covenant where the ceremonial laws are no longer necessary because of Christ's death on the cross. So what we're dealing with is a group called the Hebrews who are still in the tradition of the Old Testament covenant where there are ceremonial laws to follow. But what Christian church on Monday, Thursday, sacrifices a lamb at the altar? No, that's another tradition. And it's not necessary for even Christians to circumcise their male children. That no longer is needed. So there's lots in the ceremonial laws that we are free from. In a passage in Mark, and Jesus is talking about it's not what goes into a person, but what comes out of a person that makes him unclean. And there he's talking about, well, our sins that come from our sinful heart. That's what makes us unclean. And then the gospel writer Mark puts a little addendum in there. It says, therefore, Jesus declared that all foods are clean. So in the New Testament, there's that passage in Mark, there's that passage in Acts, where it's very clear that we no longer are to consider food as unclean. All right. Second email that I uh, received this week. Uh, your help with a Sunday school account would be appreciated. Uh, the text I put in the email, and I thank you for addressing these questions and all the valuable scriptural insights you have provided us over the years. All right. This is from 2 Corinthians 6. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But a man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who is us for the king of Israel? And one of his servants says, none, my Lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel, the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Then, verse 15, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went, be, and went out, and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, 
Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then here's the question. There's no specific mention of angels in the text. Please identify the reason for the interpretation that those who are with us were actually angels. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, that's the servant of Elisha, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now the question was the fire just not mentioned initially or did God send the fire along with the angels? Well, the answer to that question is yes, we, we know another time when an uh, army was ready to defeat Israel and God sent angel in the midst of them at night causing quite a commotion and the enemy began to kill themselves because they thought it was the Israelites that were attacking them. So God does use angels and scripture interprets scripture that the fire is often used in connection with God's message. Uh, for example, when Elijah went to heaven, he went to heaven in a chariot of fiery horses. And of course, Mount Sinai was filled with fire. And the Holy of Holies often had that cloud over it, which represented the presence of God. So fire is mentioned also as what is going to happen at the end of the world on Judgment Day. So from Scripture interpreting Scripture, we would say that when the servant of Elisha is told that there are more with us than with them, it's kind of a message that the spies, after going through the wilderness for a couple of years, got to Canaan, and they said, no, we are not able to take care of the Canaanites. So God sent them back into the wilderness for another 38 years. Only Joshua and Caleb knew and believed that God was powerful enough so that they did not need to fear the Canaanites. And of course, we remember the story, the true event of the destruction of Jericho. Okay, next email. This is from my son's 13-year-old girl. My precious granddaughter sometimes writes poetry. Here is a riddle she composed on her own. I'm very proud of her. So now I'm going to read this poetic riddle. A condition without cure and a promise strong and sure. Friday to Sunday, dark gates to pathway. Riddle me this, what when the force no man can stop meets the man 
no force can stop. That's a very, very good riddle. And then the email writer explains, a condition without cure, this is the riddle, is obviously sin and death. The promise strong and sure is from God and his power to take care of that sin. Friday to Sunday is Good Friday to Easter Sunday. The dark gates are the way to hell, which used to be our destiny, but our future was changed to the pathway, which is Jesus, the way to heaven, the truth, and the light. The force no man can stop is death because of sin. No man can save himself from these. The man no force can stop is Jesus, both true God and true man. And what happened when death met Jesus? Well, guess what? Death was defeated. So the answer to the riddle is redemption. Let me read you the riddle again. A condition without cure and a promise strong and sure, Friday to Sunday, dark gates to pathway, riddle me this, that when the force no man can stop meets the man no force can stop. That's excellent from a 13-year-old granddaughter. And so it's signed by the woman who sent me the email and co-signed God's Little Warrior. All righty, next email. Pastor Baker, your program about saving faith is excellent. There are many thoughts in there that are so well stated, such as the admonition to never attempt to prove the inerrancy of Scripture. So many well-meaning people do attempt to do that, including some LCMS pastors in adult instruction class. Now, I know what this email writer is talking about because my doctorate was on the Ten Commandments. And so I read a whole bunch of adult instruction manuals, and I was really surprised that many of them did not start with the Ten Commandments, as does Luther's small catechism, but started instead with trying to prove that the Bible is inerrant. And what do we mean by that? That means there are no mistakes in the Bible. So, for example, when it says that God created the heavens and the earth in six 24-hour days, evolution is therefore denied. Now, I don't have a problem with showing creationism is a better scientific result than evolution. And there are some great people who deal with that. 
but they don't deal with it in the sense that therefore the Bible is inerrant and you should become a Christian. No, you cannot use reason to get someone to become a Christian. There are non-Christians who do not believe in evolution, but believe that God created the world. Now, it doesn't take a Christian, therefore, to believe that. It just takes a good scientist to recognize that much of the so-called evidence for evolution is false. So I agree with this, that it's a waste of time to try and prove that the Bible is inerrant. When you speak law and gospel, the Holy Spirit can create faith which believes the Bible is inerrant and is not wrong. Because the more you get to know about Jesus, the more you realize that what is said about him is true. And that is because of the faith given to you by the Holy Spirit. To believe the unbelievable. To believe that which doesn't make any sense. The Trinity, for example. Three persons, one God. That doesn't seem to make any sense. But we believe it. God became incarnate. He became a human being, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Doesn't make any sense. It's not reasonable. But we believe it. God raised from the dead after he was crucified. Doesn't make any sense. We can't test any of that in a scientific laboratory. And so we believe it by faith. And that faith is contrary to those who say, well, the disciples came and stole the body, or Jesus hadn't really died. There are many unbelievers who try and give all kinds of reasons why we don't have to believe in the resurrection. There is no evidence that the resurrection is true, except the Bible says it happened. All right, greetings, Pastor Baker. In a program, you made a statement that baptism is not necessary for salvation, only for assurance. It has been my understanding that one is not baptized in the Holy Spirit until Trinitarian baptism occurs. Would this not mean that not baptism is needed not only for assurance, but also continuation in the faith. Please let me know if I misunderstood your meaning or if a person is baptized in the Holy Spirit apart from the water baptism. Well, in answer to that question, I can give a couple of things from the Bible. Remember, Jesus, prior to Pentecost, does even give the Holy Spirit to his disciples. And then remember John the baptizer? The angel Gabriel came to his father, Zechariah, and said, before he is born, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know that happened 
because when he was six months in the womb of Elizabeth, he jumped for joy when Jesus, who was in the womb of Mary for only a few hours, came into the room. And John the baptizer jumped for joy with Elizabeth explaining that it was because of the Holy Spirit. So there's no doubt that I have met people in adult instruction class who are believers in Jesus Christ, but they have never been baptized with a Pentecost baptism. And so the Holy Spirit did move them to believe on the basis of Bible passages. So we encourage baptism because even if you are a believer, it now provides uh, an assurance when somebody asks you, well, how were you saved? Well, I am baptized because the baptism has a promise, which is mentioned later in Mark. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. So nobody in the Old Testament who was a believer waiting for the coming of the Messiah had been baptized in the Pentecost baptism because that didn't begin until the New Testament. And yet they were believers. Baptism is so, so important. Next email. I wanted to thank you for your radio ministry on KFUO. I have been listening to KFUO on my computer for about a year. When I first started listening to Law and Gospel, I had no idea how to look at the Bible from a Law and Gospel perspective. I struggled continually with Bible application. Over the last year, with the help of the Holy Spirit, of course, I have learned what it means to look at the Scripture from a law and gospel perspective and to apply it to my life. I feel I still have a long way to go, but I have learned so much and want to continue with my Bible studies to learn even more. I think the most important statement in that email is I feel I still have a long way to go. I've been a pastor for decades, and yet I love reading theology and find many times law and gospel distinctions that I myself had not thought about. And therefore, you're always learning. Uh, law gospel, of course, we talked about recently, uh, just to help you understand what a difference it is, when the rich man comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to receive eternal life? It's that word do that shows me he is still under the law. Because under the law, you believe that you are saved by what you do rather than by what you believe. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. In every other religion, there are things to do. 
And as you do them, God is pleased with you and he rewards you with eternal life. So we've often made this distinction that those under the law merit salvation. They earn it. Whereas those under the gospel inherit salvation, receive it as a gift for no reason that we are aware of. It's just God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Therefore, law and gospel is extremely important because as the one email I read earlier in the program, those who think that they have to watch out for their diet on the basis of the ceremonial laws are ignorant of the fact that the gospel has eliminated the ceremonial laws from our salvation. I'm Tom Baker. I will not be with you on Monday. There will be uh, another program, but I'll be back with Mark Smith on Tuesday with the hymn. Until then, I pray you visit a church with a law and gospel sermon. I'm Tom Baker. God bless you. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod.